Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, but yeah, what what, what happened uh, to those that that haven't read the book was I was uh, I was in in London to to talk about my my latest book, uh, the little book of Lucke, and I was on uh, this morning show, and I mean the show have more viewers than I have countrymen, um, and you have those sort of five seven minutes live to talk about your book, and it's going well. And uh, then Phil, one of the hosts, says, so earlier you've written the little book of Hugo, now you've written the little book of Lugge, what are you gonna write about next? And I thought his Danish was really good. And I also know there's a lot of people here in the UK who've seen some of the, the TV dramas that have come from Denmark, you know, The Killing and The Bridge and uh, Borgen, as, as you pronounce it. So I said, oh, well done on, on pronouncing Danish. You must have been watching a lot of Danish porn. <laughs> as we pronounce it, but he heard you must have been watching a lot of Danish porn, right? So he started to laugh. The other hosts, they, they were laughing. I had no idea where they were laughing. It was, it was German exam all over again. Uh, and, and, and I think Holly turned to him and said, what did he say? And he said, I'm afraid to ask. And that's the end of the interview. So, um, so that was fun. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. And these are some of the things that I've talked about in my latest book, Eat to Be Illness, which is now out in the USA. So you can pick up a copy in Barnes & Noble or online at IndieBound and Amazon online too. Now, my next guest is Mike Viking, who doesn't need much of an introduction, but I wanted to take a quote from his latest book, The Art of Making Memories, just to give you an idea of what this talk is going to be about. Our memories are the cornerstones of our identity. They are the glue that allows us to understand and experience being the same person over time. They are our superpower, which allows us to travel in time and sets us free from the limitations of the present moment. They shape who we are and how we act. They influence our mood and help form our dreams for the future. Mike Viking founded the world's first happiness research institute in 2011. He's from Copenhagen in Denmark and they consult with cities, governments and organizations around the world on happiness. Happy memories 
as he describes it, are representative of the connections and undoubtedly related to human health. Now, you might think, what has this got to do with food or diet or nutrition? But these are multi-sensory experiences that cannot be separated from the enjoyment of living. And that's why my motto, my personal motto, has always been flavor as well as function in the kitchen. And it's just as important who's around the table and who you're with around the table as much as what's on the table as well and it was an absolute pleasure to have Mike there we cooked as we named it Mike's jackfruit uh, with mango salsa you can catch the recipe associated with this podcast on my youtube channel the doctor's kitchen and you can check out all the show notes on the doctorskitchen.com including the links to some of the studies that we reference and of course Mike's fantastic new book that I highly recommend you get a copy of and make sure you listen right to the end as we summarize all three of his books really and what he wants the takeaways to be as well as some top tips on how to make uh, lasting positive memories as well um i really hope you enjoy listening to this podcast it was an absolute pleasure we were laughing pretty much the whole way through and i hope this puts a smile on your day um, and gives you some meaningful and actionable tips towards creating positive experiences for yourself and your family and those around you there is a lot of evidence-based safe lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be discussing and i and i really truly feel that fostering and nurturing a positive environment uh, and creating happy memories is a very big part of that as well and if you haven't please do give us a uh, a review on the podcast Um, the positive ones really do help spread the message and uh, i invite you to join the newsletter at thedoctorskitchen.com too um, where we post science-based recipes plus lots of lifestyle change content that will help you lead the healthiest happiest life but for now on to the podcast Again, hopefully you'll like what I'm going to make for you. I'm sure. Um, so you asked for something uh, plant-heavy. Mm-hmm. You said you like Mexican food and you wanted something with mango in. <laughs> I have a special memory attached to mango. Yeah. Great. And we're going to be talking about memories because of your wonderful new book. Um, I've made for you a uh, jackfruit, or it's slaw, a jackfruit, um, pulled jackfruit. That's essentially what it is with um, cumin, a whole bunch of different spices. And I'm going to make a quick mango salsa to go with it. Sounds brilliant. Sound good? And I've never had jackfruit before. Okay. So first experience, already good. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So it's been cooking over here. So I've cheated a little bit today. Um, uh, this has been cooking for about uh, an hour or so. And what's in here, very simply, to start off, extra virgin olive oil, about two tablespoons, goes into the pan on medium heat. Um, added a couple of these small baby shallots that I just roughly chopped. Four cloves of garlic, some cumin seeds as well. So you've got cumin seeds here um, and uh, some salt, pepper. And then I threw in a can of jackfruit, which has gone missing. I think I put it in the recycling, but uh, there was a can of jackfruit there that was just drained. Um, a little bit of passata, some apple cider vinegar. And um, some of these, um, uh, this is like a, a Mexican marinade. It's basically a jalapeno salsa. But you can use whatever salsa you have. If you like a red salsa or whatever. So that's gone in there. Um, and that's just been cooking for about an hour, an hour and a half. Until the jackfruit sort of like pulls away naturally. And it becomes like quite meaty and fleshy. Mm. Um, so that's why jackfruit's quite popular at the moment. And to go with that, I'm going to make a mango salsa. So very simply... Chop diced mango, some peppers, um, coriander, mint, 
throw it together in a bowl and then we're going to mix it together. Yeah. Great. All right. I'm happy already. You're happy already. Great. And it, you're, you know, you're the happiness guy. So, <laughs> so tell us about um, your uh, your trip so far, man. Right. You've, you've been in. You've been here for a few days. Yeah. So I mean, I'm a happiness researcher. Yeah. So my career is essentially dedicated to two questions. Um, I try to understand why are some people happier than others, and how do we improve happiness, or how do we increase happiness. Um, so I've worked on this uh, almost a decade and I'm going to spend the next, I think, 40 years on those two questions. Right. Um, and, and recently I wrote a book uh, called The Art of Making Memories because we can see that memory are part of the answer to both questions. We can see that people who have the ability to form a positive narrative about their past are on average happier and therefore we also need to be making more uh, happy memories obviously absolutely and i i read this book um this week um it was sent to me in the post and i it really really did touch me um it's one of those books and i haven't had this experience before where i'm reading it and i'm trying to get into the narrative of what you've written but i can't help but be flooded by my own memories right and I'm reading the pages and I'm reading about someone else's story and then it flicks on a switch in my brain where I'm thinking about my childhood, yeah. my thoughts, my smells, my right. experiences. You know, you talk about the blades of grass and stuff and it immediately took me back yeah. to school. Yeah. It was fascinating. How did you do that through the medium <laughs> of a book, honestly? It's... Well, that's how memory works, yeah. right? It works by being triggered by, you know, the, the uh, smell of something or the sound of something you, you know you hear a song and then you're instantly transported back to uh, to a memory so if i see or taste a mango mm -hmm. i will be transported back to the time i was 16 i was living on australia in australia for one year and i saw this weird exotic fruit in the fridge for the first time they were not introduced in in supermarkets in denmark at the time and i tried it and i remember thinking where have you been all my life yeah. you know yeah. it's sweet it's a great texture and, and and sort of having that first experience trying a new ingredient for the first time is six, at 16 is quite remarkable that is, yeah. so yeah our, our memory work in in in, in that way we re, we remember something because there is something in our surroundings uh, that, that trigger a certain memory yeah. and it's super powerful um, and there is so much stored in there yeah um, and I'm, I've been really uh, overwhelmed with how powerful our memories are uh, and also how much they shape us and, yeah. and how we feel and how we act. We can see uh, there are some, some experiments um, where they have planted the false memory uh -huh. in some participants in the study yeah. that when they were kids they used to love asparagus. Yeah. And in that uh, group of the participants they become more likely to order asparagus in a restaurant, they'd be willing to pay more for asparagus yeah. uh, in in the, in in a food market and so on. So it also memories also shape how we act. Mm. Uh, so I think that's that's just really fascinating. I mean, so this was a natural progression for you in in your mind from your previous two books, were all, which were all about yes, happiness, but comfort and home comforts and that kind of stuff. Um, and now you're looking at happiness. Uh, sorry, you're looking at memories as a way to sort of add to those experiences or to. Yeah, yeah so, so earlier I've written about uh, hygge, which is mm -hmm. this uh, Danish phenomenon. Um, you know, it's, it's basically the art of creating a nice atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Food is always great to create a nice atmosphere, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, and, and I've written about happiness as well, you know, why some people are happier than others. But this book, I think, was also inspired by me turning 40. Mm -hmm. 
Huh. Uh, so, uh, so uh, I was going to ask about that because it, you, you open the book with what sounds like a midlife crisis, <laughs> and, uh, and I was, <laughs> I just thought, was that the inspiration I see, I behind see the book? That's a midlife creation. <laughs> okay, great, great. I like the positive spin on there. Nothing I would. But it means, I mean, so in 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 Denmark, men on average live to wear eighty. We smoke too much, we drink too much, uh, we have the wrong diet. So 40 means passing the sort of halfway mark, gotcha. right? Yeah. And that just meant that I started to reflect on what were actually my happiest moments in my first 40 years. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I use that knowledge to create happy moments in the future? Mm -hmm. um, so, so that that was the starting point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember I mean, and I'm, I mean, I'm not into sports cars. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that um, I think writing a book is, is a much. Better and you're not into football either, which I found hilarious because I'm not into football either. But there was a, a, an opening chapter about origami and you were describing this origami <laughs> Premier League or something where the best players were traded and then it was just so brilliant. I mean, I, to I totally get that humor, that kind of like slapstick adventurous humor. What brilliant. do you mean slapstick? It's yeah. really highbrow. <laughs> well, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I tried to write in a sort of conversational style. Yes. Essentially, you know, I, I actually try writing as if I was sitting across from somebody else, um, hopefully having Mexican food yeah. and having a nice evening, having an enjoyable conversation. So yeah. mixing studies with personal uh, anecdotes, uh, also about the time I said Danish porn on live TV. Yeah. Um, so I, I was going to bring that up because I, cause when you said that, and I, I read it in the book and I immediately went to my computer and I tried to look right. up your interview with Philip Schofield. Right. And it was so funny because it was such an innocent mistake from your end. Right. And then they, they were trying to cover it. And I, I mean, like, if anyone's listening, they should definitely go stop right, right now and go go watch it. Well, yeah, so, but, but we don't want people to Google my name and then <laughs> Danish porn because that's, <laughs> that's going to give up some, some wrong algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, what, what, what happened uh, to those that, that haven't read the book was I was... Uh, I was in, in London to, to talk about my, my latest book, uh, The Little Book of Lucas, and I was on uh, this morning show, and I mean the show had more viewers than I have countrymen, um, and you have those sort of five, seven minutes live to talk about your book. And it's going well, and uh, then Phil, one of the hosts, says, so earlier you've written The Little Book of Hugo, now you've written The Little Book of Lucas, what are you going to write about next? And I thought his Danish was really good. And I also know there's a lot of people here in the UK who've seen some of the, the TV dramas that have come from Denmark, you know, The Killing and The Bridge and uh, Borgen, as, as you pronounce it. So I said, oh, well done on, on pronouncing Danish. You must have been watching a lot of Danish porn, <laughs> as we pronounce it. But he heard you must have been watching a lot of <laughs> Danish porn, porn. right? <laughs> so he started to laugh. The other hosts, they, they were laughing. I had no idea where they were laughing. It was, it was German exam all over again. Uh, and, and, and I think Holly turned to him and said, what did he say? And he said, I'm afraid to ask. And that's the end of the interview. Yeah. So, um, so that was fun. I mean, um, that was brilliant. I, yeah. it, it's funny that, that, you know, obviously that, that's now a massive memorable point right. in your career, exactly. right? Exactly. And it, you'll always come back exactly. to that. I had a similar, perhaps less sort of embarrassing incident on the same TV show a couple of years ago, it was my first appearance on live TV. And uh, everything was going fine. I was doing a live cooking segment. We were chatting away. We'd done rehearsals twice. 
um, I was just about to put some prawns uh, on this, on the, um, uh, in the in the frying pan, and I looked at where the prawns were in rehearsal, and they weren't there. And I looked underneath, and they weren't there. And then I mouthed to myself and out loud, apparently, "Where are the prawns?" And immediately, Holly and Phil went into panic mode because they realised that the prawns weren't there. And so, on, on, I mean, I was, I was actually quite relaxed about it because I, I had some backup prawns over here that were already cooked anyway, just in case I was running late. So, so Holly literally darts round the other side of the camera to go and grab some prawns wherever they were from the kitchen and stuff. Um, and in the meantime, Phil was making small talk and he's like, tell me about salt. Is salt going to be hell? What are we? Why are you talking about soba? We're talking about the recipe. Yeah. <laughs> it was brilliant. But like, it's it's funny that because in I I, I suppose before I'd watched um, the rerun of that program, and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it. I would have thought of that moment um, in in the moment. I would have thought about it from the first person uh, perspective. But because I've seen that clip probably three or four times now, I now remember it as mm. the clip instead of how I was in that moment. Right. So my question to you is: Is our constant love of of, of cameras and videos and taking clips and, and all that kind of stuff is that almost ruining memories at all, or is it interfering with with my ability to remember what it was like in that moment? It. It can be so. So memory is probably more uh, an artist than than a museum curator. Okay. So it, it will go in and sort of repaint the memory. Um, and we also see that you know one of the fundamental things to be able to remember something is of course paying attention yeah. to something. And, and if we're too much on our phones, then we're not going to pay attention to it if we're taking pictures and so on. But I think we can also uh, turn it around and, and use, for instance, uh, our phones and our devices to retrieve and, and store some memories uh, that, that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I, I suggest uh, in the book is curating the happy hundred. Mm -hmm. So I have thousands of pictures on my phone, you have thousands of pictures of your, on your phone, and maybe we don't actually scroll through them so often. Yeah. But when I was growing up, you had old school photo albums. You yeah. brought together the family and you were looking at yeah. old pictures. And what I suggest is once a year, maybe just before New Year's, gather the family or loved ones yeah. and then go through your pictures and then decide on which are actually, which were our happiest moments, which are our happiest photos from yeah. this year. So curating the happy 100 or happy 10 or happy 50 mm -hmm. and then get them printed out and put it in an old school uh, photo album yeah, to sort yeah. of store it. That's a really good idea because I, 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 I often scroll through my picture and my pictures and it's usually food, to be honest, food porn. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite overwhelming when you have that many photos and actually being regimented about, you know, take, taking ones out and deleting them or putting them into an area where you can actually reflect on them a lot quicker yeah. Um, is, yeah, it's a fantastic idea. And food, I mean, whether it's the taste or the scent is a great also trigger yeah. of memory. So yeah. you will see a dish and you'll remember, ah, oh, that was the time, you know, I met with Mike. It was so much fun. Yeah. It was the Danish porn story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, 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 it's a really powerful, I think, time traveling vehicle uh, because you taste something and you're instantly transported back to that moment and that, that is what is called Madeline moments where, when a taste yes. can trigger a certain thing. So for me, I mean Mexican food uh, will bring me back to, uh, I spent a few months in, in Mexico uh, also writing uh, a book uh, and uh, every day after writing I would go down and have tacos on the, so on the, on the street um, and um, 
just all those experiences uh, in 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 Mexico uh, will come back when I when I have Mexican food. Yeah. Oh, great, great. I remember th- reflecting actually on on the book. Um, you've had quite a few different experiences, right? You you've been traveling a lot throughout your your early or well, late teens and twenties. You must have quite a diverse palate. What do you kind of eat at home? What are your go-tos? Mexican food. Mexican food. Yeah. Really? I mean, I like I like a, a plant strong uh-huh. heavy uh, diet. Uh-huh. Um, um, I like to try new stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really excited about jackfruit. I, I I know that when I have new ingredients or new dishes, I'll be more likely to remember that. Okay. Uh, so, for instance, over the summer. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we went to a, a restaurant uh, that is sort of, you know, new Nordic cuisine, sort of locally sourced ingredients. Mm. And we had a tasting menu and, and one of the dishes were uh, ants. Oh, nice. Which okay. are actually quite sour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was first time I had ants. It was probably also my last time yeah. for ants, <laughs> but it was a quite memorable yeah, yeah. Uh, evening. And I've yeah. had, you know, fermented shark. I've had uh, yeah, snails in the street. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, a quiet taste. Yeah, a quiet taste. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, but I think it's fun to try out new stuff. Yeah, um, and I enjoy um, I enjoy cooking a lot, uh, and and perhaps also if sometimes you know buying different sorts of, of fish and then trying them up against each other, awesome. so you can sort of really appreciate the the differences yeah. among them. Absolutely, that's something I I recommend for people who. Uh, traditionally not a fan of fish you know to try different types I mean fish is huge you can't say you don't like fish you have to try a lot of different ones before you can make that statement okay so I've just made you this very quick salsa here Um, I hope you don't mind chili I should have asked you that before I love chili good (laughs) you had me nervous then Um, so just to recap I've done this quick uh, mango salsa Diced mango, some red peppers, jalapeno, coriander, mint has also gone in there as well, um, with a little bit of uh, seasoning, some olive oil, and then that's the jackfruit Lovely. there. Um, so that's the jackfruit. That's the jack. So you see okay. these stringy, these stringy bits here. All right. That's the jackfruit. Wow. Right it there. almost looks like chicken or something. Yes, like that, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's almost like pulled pork after yeah. you've cooked it for yeah. like four or five hours. So that's what, why it's so popular amongst vegetarians and, and um, plant-based eaters. I've added some uh, some haricot beans as well, as well just mm. added fiber and Very to nice. give it a bit more robustness. Nice. And you can give us your absolute honest opinion. Brilliant. I love getting criticism, feedback, whatever you want. If you find it's great, it's great. But otherwise... Please. You'll edit it out. Yeah, yeah, I'll edit it out. We'll edit it out. <laughs> mm. Perfect amount of spice. Good, good. Perfect amount of heat. Yeah. You know, gets the blood rushing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's a very meaty dish. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's really rich. Uh, this would make me really full. Good. Um, I like this. Does it have a name? Uh, give it a name. I'll give it um, Mike's Jackfruit and Mango Salsa. Does that sound good? How about Mike and the Jackfruit? Mike and the Jackfruit. <laughs> that is perfect. That's definitely, they'll call it that. Mike and the Jackfruit. Mike and the Brilliant. Jackfruit. Right. Um, one of the things I recommend people also doing uh, is creating uh, the Apollo picnic. Mm. So the concept is everybody brings an ingredient mm-hmm. or a dish they have not tried before. It could be Mike and the Jackfruit. Yes. 
Um, and you do it around uh, June 20th because that's when the moon landing happened, the Apollo mission. Right. And that means that over time, you know, there's going to be announcement of, oh, this is the 50th anniversary of, of the moon landing, the Apollo mission, that's going to trigger the memory yeah. of a lovely afternoon yeah. where everybody was talking about this amazing Mike and the jackfruit dish mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the, um, in the garden. That's so, brilliant. Idea. That's great, I'm glad. I hope you created some happy memories. Yeah, I did. You yeah, did, you yeah. Did, you Every did. time you think of a mango salsa or jackfruit, you Jack remember fruit, this. Definitely, exactly. definitely. Good, yeah. good. I'm glad. Um, I was hoping that, that was my main uh, uh, objective for today. It was to create you a dish because so many of your memories that you, you go through in your book are centered around eating experiences. I wanted to create you a dish that is firmly centered in your mind. Yeah. Well done. Good. Mission I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, your book, as I said, memory, it's a fascinating concept because um, there's a there's a little bit of the book where you talk about, um, is it uh, Lu Luca? Luca. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm fascinated about how there's a potential for us to use memory or the, um, the utility of happy memories as a clinical tool right. to help people through times where they feel low or even those who have a clinical diagnosis right. of low mood and depression. Exactly. So what we see is that people who are able to form a positive narrative about their past, able to retrieve happier memories, are also happier overall long term. And exactly as you describe, one of the issues <clears throat> when you're struggling with depression is that not only are you not feeling happy right now, um, but you are also unable to sometimes retrieve any memory of you being happy at all. Um, and, and, and that's, of course, a, a fundamental challenge. And there has been some uh, experiments and studies with this where uh, psychologists here in the UK have helped people who are struggling with depression um, flesh out 15 happy memories and at first the participants are like I don't have 15 mm -hmm. happy memories uh, but the researchers help them and then what they do in this experiment is that they use something called the Loki method um, which is essentially a sort of memory palace or uh, it's a familiar route or your childhood home a place you know really well uh, and then place those 15 happy memories on that familiar route or in the different homes uh, or different uh, rooms in, in your childhood home. And that, in this uh, experiment, helped people who were struggling with depression retrieve uh, those happy memories when, when asked about it. So there is something we can do, but it's, it's, I think it's a super powerful tool. It does impact how we feel, it impacts how we act, it counteracts um, anxiety, loneliness, um, improve self-esteem. So there's a lot of benefits from from happy memories. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll link to that study actually about low-key, so I pronounced that incorrectly uh, earlier. Um, and and it, was just, it was a small study, but I think it, it has potential legs to go further. And, you know, it could be something as part of what we have in our uh, uh, clinical toolbox of psychotherapies alongside CBT, for example, that could be useful. Because one of the common th threads of um, low mood, anxiety, depression that I see in patients is ruminations. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the antithesis of right. that. It's yeah. ruminating about negative experiences <clears throat> yeah. where you lose rationality and control of that as well. So this is sort of like, you know, yeah. doing the opposite. Yeah, and 
it's sort of it's a vicious circle. If we ruminate, um, we are we are actually also strengthening the memories of the bad experiences that we have had because that's how memory work like a muscle. The more you train it, the more you strengthen the connection in the brain of that memory. Um, so I always like to say that that memory is like a muscle or like Santa Claus. If if you don't think of a memory, it ceases to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so the visual image you want of memory is like a really muscular Santa. Uh, that <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading, I was like, this is, I wish there were more analogies right. like this in <laughs> clinical work. And, and, and uh, I, I did a presentation earlier today and I showed a, a picture of a muscular center. And uh, you, A, you have no idea how, uh, how long time it took me to Google a picture of muscular center. And I also get some really freaky Google ads nowadays uh, because of that search. But yeah, that's the image you want to use. You make this description in the book actually about, is that there's, I think you tread the line very well, treading the line between being good weird and not being invited back weird. How, how do you do that? How do you know? Or is it just through experience of treading the line too far, <laughs> going over the line a bit too much? Um, yeah, so, so you're probably referring to what I call the pineapple principle, right? Because we remember, uh, we remember the things that stick out. Um, so if I uh, said, you know, a list of words, if I said, you know, giraffe, elephant, dog, cat, turkey, dove, wolf, cheesecake, um, uh, chicken. What you'll be more likely to remember out of those words is the word cheesecake, because that's the one that sticks out. That's called the von Restoff uh, effect. Um, uh, and it also means when, when we see things that are weird, when we see things that stick out, we remember them. So it's something I can use, for example, if I'm, uh, if I'm doing a presentation um, and Often I'll, I'll be the only happiness expert. I'm, I'm, I'm the weird happiness researcher. Uh, so that's fine. People are, are going to remember that. But sometimes um, at events where we might be 12 happiness researchers and I want people to remember me. Um, and, and, and therefore uh, I, I call it the pineapple principle. I, I would bring something on stage that is weird, that is out of place. It might be a, a pineapple or uh, a statue of a small horse or something that is completely out of, of place for, for the talk. Uh, and then, then I'll, I'll explain why it is I, I brought a pineapple on stage and I'll say, you know, there's going to be a lot of happiness researchers here today and I know we struggle with names, so now you can just refer to me as the guy with the pineapple. So you want to explain why you're weird. Uh, of course, you don't want to be too weird. You don't want to bring a pineapple to, you know, the minister of, 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 of state for, for happiness uh, or, or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I like the way in the in the the start of it, you you make the distinction between semantic and episodic yeah. memory as yeah. well. Can you describe a bit about what those two are? Yes. So so semantic memory is you knowing that uh, Paris is the capital of France. It's knowledge about the world that we share with the world. It's also a knowledge we're probably unaware of when we acquired it. I mean, yes, I know that Paris is the capital of France, but I can't remember learning it. Um, so that's semantic knowledge. Episodic knowledge is remembering your trip to Paris. You know, sitting in the Luxembourg Garden, uh, reading a farewell to arms, and there was a, a guy with stripes and a beret and a baguette, and you thought, oh, how cliche is that? It's, it's, it's a vivid memory. It has a, a richness in details of taste, of sounds, of experiences. So, so episodic memory is 
um, remembering, yeah. where semantic knowledge, uh, semantic memory is, is knowing. Yeah, right? it's something that I used to employ actually when I was at medical school, and I used to revise in different corners of my room to remember which part of the body mm. or which sort of subject matter I was dealing with. Right. Pharmacology was over in the corner, biochemistry was another place, I had pathology on one side, and then different corners of the room would correspond to upper limb anatomy, lower limb anatomy. Well, and so that was like a, a, yeah. a thing that I just started doing. And as you were talking about Paris as well, you know, I don't know that many facts about Paris, but what I do remember is um, the time when I went and played Petanque. Uh, it was a sunny day. I knew exactly what I was drinking. I know exactly who I was with. I know exactly what they were wearing as well, what time of year it was, all those different yeah. things. I can give so much granular detail. Right. Yeah. It's quite scary, yeah. but then semantic knowledge is it's it's a lot harder to retain. Yeah. I suppose you haven't put yeah. like, and the difference here is there, there to your episodic memory. There's a time traveling element to it, right? You you can travel back in time, and then you know you can you can you can taste the pasties or whatever yeah. you had at that yeah. that time, and you can sort of you can you can visualize the landscape you were in. Yeah. Uh, so so it has a time traveling experience now. That that actually reminds me of I was playing petang recently as well. Right. And I was at a wedding in, in France and I was I was playing petang up against a couple of French guys, and um, and and yeah, one of them said I'm not really good at petang, and then I said What do you mean? You just scored two points over me, and he said You're not very good either. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I thought that was very candid. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> So we, we touched on it a bit earlier about the impact of social media um, making memories. And uh, you made reference to um, a great organization, the Center for Humane Technology, I believe they're called, mm. and, and, and the work they're doing. Essentially, it's a, a bunch of breakaways from uh, Google and Facebook and, and a whole bunch of other very well-known social media companies who are realizing that this isn't a, a race for advertising dollars. It isn't a race for uh, market share. It's actually a race for our attention. Right. And we're experiencing um, uh, weapons of mass destruction, yeah. as I think it was coined in The Guardian or something. Um, how do you deal with social media and what do you think that is doing to our memories? Is that eroding our memories? Is it a tool that we could use to bolster our memories? Um, and, and how do you do that on a daily basis? Right. I realize I'm getting that three questions there <laughs> all at once. So. Please take your time. <laughs> um, and, and to answer, I think both yes and no. So, so they are eroding, but I think they can also be used as tools. Um, so we can see that, that attention is a fundamental element in remembering something. Of course, if we are not paying attention to something, we are not going to remember it. And it, I think it's a really powerful ingredient um, in creating memories. And a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was having a conversation with a Polish journalist who had uh, read the book as well, and she recalled being around eight, sitting at the dinner table with her mom and her sister, and they were having this colorful Polish dish, and there were some yellow flowers on the, on the table, and her mother said, I hope you remember this moment. And she did, now 30, 40 years later down the line, because her mother was forcing her to pay attention to it. And of course, that's also, it, it's like salt. It's an ingredient you have to use in moderation. If you, if, you, if you say all the time, I hope you remember this moment, you're gonna be like, yeah, shut up, dad. Um, so so, so it, it can be dosed at, at, at the right amount. So, so being 
mindful, paying attention will help you remember it. And if we are only paying attention to our phone, of course, we're not paying attention to what happens around us. So it can undermine, I think, memories. On the other hand, we can also use, um, I think, social media to, to harvest some memories and to create future memory triggers. Mm. So one of my suggestions is why not create a personal social media account that only you can access mm. and see. And there you could post pictures of your everyday, things that are interesting to you, but not interesting for, for the rest of us. And also, I think it's quite liberating. Um, you don't have to worry about the right caption yeah. or the right filter and so on. But here's just your everyday. Uh, and people that matter to you, dishes that you've had, for example, Mike and the jackfruit, um, and, 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 and your everyday life, this is what my desk looked like in 1979, and so on. And think in 10 years, that's gonna be a, a gold mine of things that will help you trigger memories of uh, that time. Yeah, and there, there is actually one social media company that I find quite fascinating. It's called One Second Every Day. Yeah. And they essentially, yeah, get you to remind you at random points in the day just to record one second video, yeah. at whatever you're doing in that moment, whether right. you're at work, whether you're cooking, whether you're watching something at a football stadium or an origami stadium. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, those who have read the book will understand the reference. But um, uh, where you just take that and then at the end of the year, you have this huge collection of seemingly meaningless memories to any other person right. looking at it, but to you, they trigger all this yeah. flurry of information. Yeah. And just a second will trigger something um, because there's also going to be a sound that can trigger stuff. And I mean, we, we take a lot of photos, but, but you know, we experience the world through all our five senses. And you know, why not have a collection of our favorite people's laugh? You know, that's also going to be something nice in, 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 in 10 years, especially with the people that have gone to, to sort of preserve that uh, for, for, for years to come. Absolutely, yeah. And I like the way you describe, you know, sometimes you need to be the opposite of Marie Kondo. <laughs> you need to have a clutter of all these different things because you don't just collect pictures and, and ornaments, you, you collect memories right. and, and yeah. things that inspire you. Yeah. Know, like. yeah, I think I suggest being the arch enemy of that. Yeah, arch <laughs> 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 so, and doing exactly what you described, you know, combining or finding stuff that are manifestations of your happy memories. Um, so, so in the book, um, we, we, we did a huge collection of happy memories from around the world, mm. more than a thousand memories from 75 different countries. One of my favorite uh, memories is from a, a British woman in her 30s who decides with her family they should go out to the beach and cook over a fire pit. And they go out there and it's windy and it's cold and they can't get the fire going and they end up eating this half-cooked porridge. But she says it's this fantastic family time. They're sitting under the blankets and it becomes this, this fond memory of uh, an event that went horribly wrong, wrong. The food was horrendous, but it bonded them to, uh, yeah. together as a family. Great story. Now, what she might do, if she were the arch enemy of Marie Kondo, was to go to that beach and collect, it could be you know, a, a stone to use as a paperweight, or it might be some small, small, you know, beautiful stones that could be turned into a, a necklace if she has daughters or something like that. So, so finding stuff that will help you remember that crazy time uh, when we went to the, the beach and ate uh, half-cooked porridge. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the, the, the concept of um, 
Well, how multitasking can be distracting, right? It's, it's kind of going back to the whole social media thing where you're never doing one thing. Uh, you, you're never doing multiple things at once. Mm. You're just doing one thing badly. I, I mean, hopefully I've kind of proven that a little bit wrong with yeah, my cooking and things. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but with like cooking and, and right. interviewing at the same time, but well, it, can, it, can, well, yeah. it can be done okay. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe the food might have tasted much better if I was just concentrating on that. But um, uh, but I, I think that's the issue with social media because I often find my, my, myself um, walking outside and instead of uh, appreciating the beautiful tree that's been outside my flat for years, obviously, um, and uh, admiring how it's changing through the seasons and then uh, savoring my walk and the wind against my fingers when I walk down the road to the tube, I'm on my phone mm -hmm. and I'm looking at what someone else is doing right. or I'm consuming information that's being handed to me through my phone and yeah. I'm not being as present. Um, that's a, a single issue that, that I think has vast problems and, and, and that I think I might be seeing, in the, I don't want to be too presumptuous about it, but I think I might be seeing in clinic as well mm. that people are being uh, too easily distracted and they, they don't uh, harness a sense of gratitude for the mundane in life. Yeah. And uh, it can also be something that sort of undercuts usual social uh, interaction. Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting, we, we see some schools, streets, trying out new things in terms of creating better playbook around social media. And I think you know, social media, it, that's here to stay, but it's still a new technology. So I think we still need to sort out how do we use it in, in the best possible way. Um, and we've seen in, in Denmark at least one boarding school that have students uh, from their 15, uh, no, sorry, so, uh, 14 to 16, and what this school does is that when the kids arrive, it takes their phones and their devices. Mm. And then the, the students can have their phones one hour per day and Snapchat and Instagram and so on. But for 23 hours, you're without your phone. And then after six months, after the first semester, uh, the students vote among themselves. Should we keep the system or should everybody get their phones back? And 80% vote to keep the system in place. Um, because they experience, well, if none of us have our phone, we actually create friendships and a community. And we are here with the people we are at school with instead of being online with people from back yeah. home. So I think that's interesting. But I think, uh, I think it's a super complex area. And I think social media can be used for good or for bad. If we use social media just to compare ourselves up against other people. Uh, and it is a tough contrast to compare your life up against, right? So every time I go on Instagram, you know, guys getting married and going on honeymoon and running an Ironman on the same day, right? And it's, it's, it's difficult to compare my life up against his. Um, but if we use social media to connect with others, um, to organize social activities, to share stuff, uh, to help grandparents, you know, connect with their grandchildren, great. Um, but yeah, it's a tool that can be used for good and bad. It's really interesting you said that about the children and how they voted uh, in a landslide essentially to, to maintain that mechanism. And I, and I kind of in my head was drawing a parallel between the relative access of social media to the relative wealth of other people. Would you rather be in a society, I think there's something that you pose in one of your talks and, and some of your books as well. Would you rather be in a society where you have relative wealth right. or wealth but not at the, yeah. uh, the same level as other people yeah. in that society? Yeah. Yeah. That I think is fascinating because yeah. social media and likes and, and, and um, uh, so attention from other people is the new currency. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it, and it's a pattern that comes up a lot in happiness research and in data that we care about our relative position. We care about our social position in the social hierarchy. So as you say, if we ask people, would you rather live in a world where you make 50,000, let's say US dollars per year, and everybody else makes 25,000, or you could live in another world where you make 100,000, so twice as much as you made before, but everybody else makes 200,000. And on average, 50% will choose to live in the first world, even though they're making absolute less than they could in the second world, but they're making relatively more than other people. And we see that in other areas as well, in terms of beauty, in terms of health, in terms of likes uh, on, on Facebook, um, that we are social beings. We do compare ourselves to other people. Uh, and I think the Americans have a saying that a happy man is a man that makes $100 more than his wife, sister's husband. Right, yeah. um, and, and I think it's good to be aware of that because you are always going to find somebody who's going to be more successful in whatever little slice of life you are comparing uh, yourself to. Um, and um, that's perhaps not a good thing if you're interested in happiness. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. Uh, be mindful of, of of social comparisons. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that that whole area fascinating. I think we're we're gonna witness a lot more with um, with social media in general, actually, and how people use it. I know the Human Centre for Design have a whole bunch of different ways in which you can moderate your use of social media. I mean, I feel kind of hypocritical talking about it because you know I'm active on social media. That's how I've gained a position where I'm able to write books and influence a lot more people. But I'm also witnessing the disadvantages of, yeah. of it as well. And I think a lot of people are becoming distanced from social media yeah. with good reason. Um, and I certainly find the effects on myself. Um, one chapter I, I found fascinating in the book, um, as I did the whole book, uh, is using the emotional highlighter pen. Right. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so, so we remember emotional experiences, good or bad. I mean, the... Uh, <laughs> The, are you, are you, is this a setup to get me talking about the Danish porn moment uh, again? No, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That's fine. <laughs> Just in case no one got that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all right. We're, we've got so, so we, we remember stuff that are... You can talk about another embarrassing moment. <laughs> so we remember stuff that are embarrassing, like if you're saying a wrong word on, on national live TV. But we remember, we remember the when we're sad, when we were angry, when we are really happy. So, so using that emotional highlighter pen to our advantage, uh, if we want to um, make uh, happy memories. I think it's also something we should be mindful of, especially parents. Um, you know, we all remember where we heard about 9-11. Uh, tragic events, 9-11, uh, the you know, Kennedy assassination, those events are flashbulb moments. Mm -hmm. We have quite vivid uh, memory of what happened. I was in a cafe writing some horrible fiction and, and in comes uh, somebody who says that they've heard that a plane had gone into the, uh, the tower in, in New York and I went home and I saw it online, uh, not online, um, on the news. Um, so we know that when there are these global tragical events, our children, our friends, our loved ones, they are going to remember that day quite vividly. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we might do um, if we have kids is make sure we introduce an element of love to that memory. Mm -hmm. So 
if there's a global tragic, uh, tragic event, maybe that's the time, you know, you want to cook, cook them their favorite meal. Maybe that's the time you want to make sure that they know they are loved. Mm -hmm. um, because chances are that that is also something that they might remember 20 years from now when they think back uh, of that global uh, tragic yeah. day. So, so, so that is using the, the emotional highlighter pen. It can also be doing stuff that sort of scares us a little bit, brings us up out of our, our comfort zone, uh, thinking about, okay, how to spend the afternoon, which path to go would I be more likely to remember in 10 years time. Um, so, so that's the emotional highlight pen. I, I often use a similar sort of technique when I'm in a clinic with a patient who has multi, m multiple complex issues. They have chronic pain, they have uh, gut issues, they have um, memory um, uh, or anhedonia, um, so lack of enjoyment and things that usually bring them pleasure. Um, and a common, rather than going to ind individual scenarios, given that I'm a general practitioner in the NHS, I already have eight minutes per patient, um, a, a question that often breaks open a lot of things is when do you remember the last time you felt well? When was the last time you felt super happy mm. or super well in yourself or fit? And often is I can never remember that. You know, it's usually the first thing, quite similar to the study you were talking about where they couldn't remember 15 things. But often with a little bit of nudging, a little bit of coaxing, they can come up with some sort of uh, date an objective date of when they feel well and then getting them to imagine what that was like and how they felt in that moment mm. is usually quite a powerful tool because then it gives me an idea as a practitioner what is the next best step for that person yeah. what is the next best thing that I can do to improve them on their health journey to create and foster an environment where their their body and their, and their mind looks after itself um, I think that could be something that ties in perhaps with with memory making positive memory making and and how yeah. And I think I really love what you're doing there. And, and I think you are actually honoring the original definition of health. I mean, WHO, you know, the def definition of health is you know, not just the absence of disease, but it's physical, mental and social well-being. And I think perhaps for many years we've been focusing too much on the physical aspect. Of course, those things are connected, mm. uh, but, but addressing mental health and understanding that our physical health, mental health, and social health are related, uh, I think is tremendously important. So actually one of the studies we've done at the Happiness Research Institute is understanding how different diseases impact life satisfaction levels or well-being levels for uh, patients. And, and one of the uh, patient groups we've looked at um, have a skin disease, so something called psoriasis. And we've looked at, I think we have almost 200,000 patients in that study. And obviously, if you have a disease, often you are less satisfied, uh, you are less happy than the average Dane or uh, Brit or American and so on. Um, but we see that happiness gap close. If the doctor fully understands that um, the mental impact the disease also have on them because it's not just the skin disease it's also something that can be socially stigmatizing some of these uh, patients have experienced you know being thrown out of swimming pools or people moving away from them on the bus because they think they think it's contagious so so addressing the mental impact that a skin disease can have um we see that that uh, reduces the happiness gap. So very good uh, what you're doing. Oh, thanks. I, I mean, uh, like, uh, I think there's a lot more practitioners who are aware of this now. And in fact, um, there's a fantastic book, I don't know if you've read it, called The Language of Kindness. 
It's by a nurse who um, is, has actually been on the pod, actually. Um, she's been a nurse for 20 years, and she was very quick to realize that nurses are in a particularly powerful position because patients don't re- always remember the doctor who cured the disease or gave them the medication or made the diagnosis. Obviously, those are very important. Right. But it's the way you were treated, and often that is in the realm or the opportunity to have that effect is in the realm of nurses who spend a lot more time with patients. So empathy, um, the uh, kindness, the shows of kindness, even if it is a soft touch on the shoulder mm. or uh, an engagement in a conversation, right. that can be just as powerful yeah. in terms of their healing process. Yeah. I think Mike Twain said that kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can see, or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, so I've read Daniel Kahn's, Kahneman's book um, that he co-authored, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Uh, and I, 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 I like to think that I read it and I understood it. I don't understand a lot of it. But the way you describe the peak end effect, I completely understood. Because you've written in a way, like you said, is very conversational. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that and how yeah. that's influenced yeah. your, your yeah. writing? I've, I've, I've read the same book, yeah. uh, and and for those of you that don't know Kahneman, um, he is he's basically the Beyonce of behavioral economics. So he's a psychologist. He have he has won the Nobel uh, Prize in economics, in part because of his studies that show that we actually have two selves. So we have an experiencing an experiencing self, which is who we feel we are right now that is experiencing this moment and sort of lives for 500 million times for three seconds at a time throughout our lives. The second um, self we have is the remembering self. So that is the one that keeps track of who we are, our identity. That's the one with, with the memory. And what Kahneman and his colleagues have shown is that those two people that we are sometimes have different opinions. So one experiment, you had the participants first put one hand in water that were 14 degrees for 60 seconds. And 14 degrees is quite unpleasant. And then um, in the second trial, the same participants were asked to put the other hand in water, also 14 degrees, also for 60 seconds, but then for an additional 30 seconds, with 15 degrees. So they increased the temperature in the water a little bit. Now the participants didn't know how long they had their waters in hand for. But then when the participants were asked, which trial would you prefer to repeat? A lot of them went for the second trial, even though they had the same amount of discomfort as in the the first trial, plus an additional 30 seconds of a little bit less discomfort. So, So what Kahneman proves in in several studies is that what shapes our memory is how things were at the peak and how it ended. So that's the peak end uh, effect. And in in that sense, that's why we sometimes make bad decisions because the remembering self will think of the second trial as the better version and drag our experiencing self uh, through that. Uh, So as I write, in that sense, our experiencing or our remembering self is kind of a prick in that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so, uh, when when you when people read your book um, or, or read all three of the books, what are the fundamental 
things that you want them to take away? Because there's a lot in there, and I think you know, rather than ask you to give us some tips on how to create better memories, right. you've done a fantastic job of that. And I think there's so many different facets of the book that will be applicable to different people at different yeah. stages of their life. But overall, how do you think they all marry together, and what what kind of things do you want to be? Taken? I think, I mean, with the, for example, the the book, the little book of Luke. I look at what explains why some people are happier than others in that one. And I would like us to look at happiness the same way we look at health. You know, there is, when it comes to how long you and I are going to live, there's a genetic component. So we're predisposed for some diseases. Uh, there's also a context component. So the air pollution in London, the air pollution in Copenhagen, the quality of the healthcare system in those countries, and then the choices we make on a daily basis. So diet, exercise, smoking, alcohol, and so on. And I think it's the same way we need to look at happiness. Yes, there is a genetic component. Yes, we are born more or less happy. But yes, there's also policies that matter and the cities we live in, they also matter, but also the choices we make on a daily basis. Now, um, the first book was on Hugo, which is a Danish phenomenon that is uh, essentially the art of creating a nice atmosphere. It's doing what you do. It's bringing people together over a nice meal. It's thinking about the atmosphere in the room, creating harmony, creating a sense of peace and um, and comfort, uh, which is, is sort of a Danish, it, it's a key part of the Danish culture and, and the way we perceive uh, our, our, our national identity. Um, and then the third book, I, I hope the main takeaway for, for leader, uh, for, readers there is that going from thinking of memory as something random, as something that just is coincidental, to thinking of memory as something I can actually influence. And I actually have some control over what I will remember from my life and what my family and loved ones will remember, that I can actually design happy memories um, for them and for myself. Can I give you a couple of things that I've taken away from your yeah, book? Yeah. Still, yeah. So one thing I've now become a lot more proactive around is definitely putting my phone away. So I'm, I've always been aware of so the impact of social media, but putting my phone away when I walk out the door, because typically that's when I first like to look at my phone. I don't like to look at it when I first wake up. I try to minimize it in the morning when I'm having breakfast, etc. Um, and when I leave my house, that's when I start looking at my phone. And I realized after reading a book, I'm not paying attention to the surroundings and that crisp air in the morning that hits my face. And you know, that, that essentially is, is what I'm missing in the morning. The second thing is um, when I have uh, dinner with friends now, which is quite hard to organize, particularly living in London, we all have busy lives. So that's a, a fairly rare occasion. So probably once every couple of months with like close friends from, from medical school. Um, I, I wanna take a moment before I go into having dinner with them or whenever I meet them to sort of think about how long it's been since I've met that person and what kind of environment and what kind of night and what things I'm gonna remember during the evening as well, that to, to prime my memory yes. for future. Yeah. So I'm sort of creating that memory bank. Um, and the other thing um, is uh, doing what you suggested a little bit earlier, like looking through my photos and selecting a, a memory bank, personal ones for me for the year, maybe no more than 50 or 100 um, that I can reflect on in the future. Very good. Yeah. Well done. You're a good student. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>
what a guest uh, and, and what a pleasure it was to, to create that dish for Mike and have it named after Mike as well um, you can catch it on YouTube make sure you do check out the recipe you can get all the uh, recipes associated with the podcast on my website thedoctorskitchen.com to summarise our tips uh, I would say it's to be aware of all your senses when you're happy in a moment where you are having an absolute belly laugh think about the tastes the smells the environment the atmosphere who you're with what you're feeling in that moment beyond pure laughter obviously you know there are so many things that you can hold on to and 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 i said this in the podcast a number of times the book made me conjure images of my past and 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 happy moments as well use and create unique memory triggers so little triggers like a a stone uh, or uh, an, an anecdote from that um, uh, that experience that you've had that can trigger that sense of joy as well. Uh, and I say, uh, in, in accordance to um, Mike's advice as well, is to create a memory dish. So if you know that you're going to be meeting up with your friends or um, you're going to go to a restaurant or you're going to do something adventurous at home, obviously not sausages, uh, <laughs> or unless you want sausages, um, and creating a dish around that uh, I think is fantastic. Um, so theming an evening, um, whether it be Mexican, whether it be Turkish, whether it be Indian, whatever you like. Um, and please do check out the show notes as well associated with this podcast. They're all on the doctorskitchen.com where you can also subscribe for weekly recipes that we send out for free to our newsletter, which has thousands of you on. Um, and you can find all this information up more uh, on the website too. Tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen. Check out the Instagram and YouTube under the same name. And please do check out Mike Viking as well. His Instagram is Mike spelled M-E-I-K viking w-i-k-i-n-g all one word and you can find them on facebook twitter uh, and instagram obviously as well catch you next time planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 